Hello, and welcome back to Crime Note, episode 16 today. How are we doing, guys? I feel like this week has flown by, but I have absolutely nothing to show for it. Anyone else? Like, I've done nothing. Mainly recovering from the vaccine, which, yeah, I'm still recovering from. And it it took a week to get over the most of it. And I still have an occasional headache. And my voice is still not back to its full potential. So that's annoying. Shops and hairdressers and tattoo parlours are officially open in the UK this week from Monday. So I'm more excited for shops this time round than I was the first lockdown, I won't lie. Not that I have any money to spend in the shops, but will that stop me from spending money in the shops? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, everyone's like, oh yeah, pub guns, pub guns, and I'm like, mm, I just want to go spend all my money in charity shops to see what cheap clothes I can get. It's getting to that point of lockdown that we all just have nothing to talk about, which is really fucking dull, because every conversation I have nowadays falls on silence because we've all got nothing to report obviously and last week brought us the death of prince philip didn't it i you know that's very very sad and i honestly can't say i'm surprised the poor guy was hanging on by a thread bless him but it must be so annoying to get to 99 years old and you just missed your 100th birthday by a few months (laughs) do you think his wife would have written him a letter for his birthday like does he does he get one same as everyone else i don't know but yeah that was the most of what's happened here bar the government advice for no astrazenecas to under 30s which they announced four days after i got it (laughs) like it is perfectly safe and i would take the risk over and over to protect myself and others from covid so don't for a second get me wrong there and think that i'm panicking about the vaccine that i got i'm not it's just when I was like day seven into having a headache and they were like oh under 30s watch out it was just not reassuring I won't lie but everyone get vaccinated it's safe do it (laughs) I saw a fucking post on Instagram the other day which was amazing it said remember there's no hot girl summer without spring vaccinated girl (laughs) and it's true if you don't get vaccinated we won't have a summer so we won't have a life. We won't. This will be life. Right, enough of that. You know this. You're not here to listen to COVID news. This week's episode is a very interesting one that I've stumbled across so many times in the world of true crime cases. And I just had to cover it. We've done a lot of modern cases as of late. Um, so this is a little earlier. Not that old, but still pre-2000 millennium. It's a very well-known case and because it's so well-known there are so many myths and like just fiction around it. Um, So I've done my best to really really like differentiate fact from fiction and it was so hard guys it was so hard to find what was true and what wasn't because we've all heard the lies and that's in our head. So I'm going to do my best, so bear with me today, guys. I do not intend any harm to the victims or families involved in these cases. 
This episode was compiled with evidence I found online that is readily available to the public. This podcast contains content which some listeners may find disturbing. And now you have been officially warned. We can begin. Today I'm taking you back to the 15th of May 1970, where Daniel LaPlante was born in a very small town in Massachusetts. Daniel was born into a very difficult upbringing, which didn't set him in good stead for the rest of his life, as we will go on to find out. He was one of three boys and lived with his brothers, mother and stepfather. From an early age, it is reported that Daniel fell victim to sexual assault. There isn't a lot of information on this, including who exactly was responsible, but it is believed that his biological father was the one to do this. Neighbours reported giving the family a wide berth at all costs, describing them as odd, stating that they gave off bad vibes, specifically Daniel, who was described by neighbours as scary and strange. Daniel, as well as having a troubled home life, suffered throughout school. At an early age, Daniel was diagnosed with dyslexia, which made him stand out from the other children. They began to mock him and call him weird and different, making it hard for Daniel to make friends. By the time Daniel was a teenager, his behaviour began to develop in a negative way. He was rarely washed and people noticed his lack of hygiene. And because of this, he was referred to a psychiatrist for treatment. Oh my god, imagine that. Yeah, you smell really bad, so we're going to send you to a psychiatrist. How embarrassing, first of all, but does that not just scream neglect? Like, I don't know what does. If that doesn't shout neglect to you, I don't know. As a child, it is your parents' responsibility to keep you clean. And if you find a child that is not clean, you do not just send them to a psychiatrist. (laughs) You get social services involved. Do you not? Like, I'm not defending anything that Daniel has done. Um, But I do think, you know, he, he was doomed from the start, to be honest. He's received no help whatsoever just the lack of proper fucking care around him it's awful this psychiatric intervention will come to no surprise but it did not have the desired effect on daniel in fact daniel was even abused sexually by this mental health professional as well but there's not much more information on that out there either as we can see already it's not a good start just imagine you think you're finally getting help and nope They're just going to abuse you too. Like, every man this child has come into contact with has fucking sexually assaulted him. Which, of course, is going to fuck you up. This soon started manifesting itself into Daniel's behaviours, and very quickly he settled into a life of crime. By the time Daniel was a teenager, he began breaking into people's homes and stealing valuable possessions. Daniel even began breaking into people's homes and just moving things about just to fuck with them and let them know that someone had been in their home. Which is pretty fucked up when you think about it. In 1986, when Daniel was 15, he got hold of a phone number that belonged to a girl the same age as him, named Annie Andrews. I don't know how exactly he got this phone number, but his excuse was a mutual friend gave him the number. But back in the 80s, he could have just used the phone book, like... It was very easy to get hold of numbers and that was the only way to contact someone. So I don't think that's that bizarre for the time. Annie lived with her younger sister and father. 
Her mother had very recently passed away from cancer, and they were all still very much adjusting to this tragic life event. Their father began working more than ever to provide for his girls. Daniel began calling the house frequently and asked to speak to Annie. They would talk every so often, and Daniel described himself to Annie as athletic and good-looking. He also pretended he was the captain of the football team, which, as we all know from American sitcoms, is top dog in high school. So when he asked Annie out on a date to go get some ice cream, she agreed. Daniel went to pick up Annie from her house for this date, and immediately she was met with a scrawny, smelly, dishevelled, shy boy who looked like he hadn't showered in weeks. She still decided to go on the date with him, so the pair went off. Daniel took particular interest in the recent passing of Annie's mother, and on this date began asking a lot of questions. He was fascinated by her death. He was asking her really inappropriate questions about her mother, like, how did she look when she died? Did you see the light leave her eyes? Fucking hell, what would you do? I feel like it's pretty obvious not to ask those kind of questions anyway, but especially when it's on a first date and the deceased person in question is their dead mother. Wow. Annie was not impressed by this, or his very differing appearance to say the least, so she politely declined a second date, and surprise surprise, Daniel didn't take well to this rejection, and decided to get his revenge. However, the girls are really struggling with this new life without their mum, and were desperate to do anything to reach her. This is where they decided to hold a seance to try and contact her. So, they made their own Ouija board, lit some candles and brought some of their mother's belongings to the basement. Shortly after they began, their father caught on and was absolutely having none of it, and demanded that they come upstairs. Which, as you know through all fictional horror movies, if you leave a Ouija board halfway through a seance, you didn't close the portal which apparently would mean the invited spirit would then be trapped in your house or wherever you started the seance. Fun fact, Ouija boards were invented in the 1890s, so they're not what movies tell us they are. (laughs) They're not some ancient thing that has a big history of contacting the dead. They're very much more recent than we think, and it was more invented as, like, a game to try and manipulate other players kind of thing. So take everything with a pinch of salt. Anyway, you may be thinking, why the fuck am I telling you about this and talking about Ouija boards? (laughs) But trust me, it's relevant. By the autumn of 86, Annie and her sister Jessica, who was only eight years old at the time, began hearing strange noises in their house. In particular, knocking coming from the walls that would never be present when their father was home. Their father simply insisted It was the noise of the pipes and nothing to worry about. But with the recent girls' interrupted seance, they began to worry. The girls were convinced this knocking had something to do with their seance, and in more particular, their mother. They began asking the spirit questions to which it would respond with knocks. So I mean, sure, you would believe that. Like, it's all big circumstance that is happening post this seance, so... Obviously, they're going to like comfort themselves by saying it's their mother. The knocking began moving around their house, and when the girls returned from school, 
they noticed items of furniture were in different places, and some items were completely missing altogether. Sound familiar yet? This obviously made the girls doubt their mother's spirit. The girl's father continued to ignore their pleas, believing they were simply trying to get attention from him or trying to deal with their grief in an unhealthy way. So the girl's father sent them to counselling. One day in particular, the knocking moved to the basement. The girls went down to investigate. Much to their horror, when they turned the light on, they were greeted with a message written on the basement wall in what looked like blood. The message read, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Yep, that would absolutely fuck you up whether you believe in ghosts or not. (laughs) The girls ran outside the house and waited for their father to return from work. Their father returned and still didn't buy the girls' stories of evil spirits in this home. The knocking began to calm down after this incident, so their father once again believed that they were making the whole thing up. That was until a couple of weeks later, when the knocking returned, but this time it was in Annie's room. The girls were greeted with another message on the wall that stated, I'm back, come and find me. And immediately the girls ran out and took refuge in their neighbour's home until their angry father returned. Upon his return, he was sick of it and decided to go in and check the place out, to put their theories to rest. When he walked in, the TV was blaring at a ridiculous volume. He went up to Annie's bedroom, where he saw a new message on his daughter's wall that stated, Marry me. When he turned around, he was met with a figure standing on the other side of the room with his dead wife's wedding dress on, a blonde wig and makeup. In the figure's hand was a hatchet. Brian Andrews froze and watched as the figure disappeared into the house. The police were called and it became very apparent that whoever it was did not leave the house and was very much still inside. The mysterious writing on the wall was soon proven to be written in ketchup, not blood, which again only confirmed that they were dealing with some sick fuck rather than a spirit. It didn't take long for the police to find the culprit in a small cupboard in the house. They opened the door, and who was hiding inside? None other than Daniel LaPlante. He was arrested on the spot whilst police investigated his break-in, but as it turns out, there was no break-in as such. Daniel had been living in the walls of the house for two months, Some reports say he had dug tunnels to make it easier to travel from room to room to act as the knocking slash spirit. This is a story I'm sure we've all heard, whether it be through podcasts and True Crime Nation or through sleepover horror stories. But alas, a lot of that story is just a story. It's fiction. The only thing I could find as fact and proof is that Daniel LaPlante was in Andrew's house hiding in a cupboard dressed in a deceased wife's wedding dress with makeup on and a hatchet. Nobody was harmed in the story despite adaptations saying the family was all tied up and that they managed to escape. It is allegedly true that he was hiding in the walls but no proof. And as good as that story is I've got to believe that it was probably far less interesting than it was in real life. Still fucked up and wrong like But I don't think the haunting ghost story was quite true. I couldn't resist preaching it as it was fiction, guys. I'm sorry. So forgive me, but it would have been a pretty boring episode if I just told you about the boy in a cupboard. Daniel was trialled in Massachusetts after this as a minor and charged with armed assault, breaking and entering and malicious destruction of property. 
He was sent to a juvenile correction facility where he remained until the 6th of October 1987. When he was released, he was ordered to move back home to live with his mother and stepdad in Townsend, Massachusetts. It didn't take long for Daniel to, surprise, surprise, get back into his old habit of stealing from people. And by November, he stole two handguns from his next-door neighbour. And not to spoil what comes next, but Daniel intended on using them. On the 1st of December, another Townsend resident and local lawyer, Andrew Gustafsson, decided to call home to his wife Priscilla. He often called her and spoke about his day and went to check up on her. Priscilla was a nursery school teacher who was often home by the early afternoon, looking after their two small children, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William, after school. As well as this, she was currently three months pregnant. Andrew became worried when the phone rang, but no one answered. He knew immediately that something was wrong, so he decided to leave work early and check on them. Here is where Andrew walked into his bedroom to find his pregnant wife laying face down on their bed with a pillow over her head. In this pillow were two bullet holes and her skin was already turning grey. It was pretty obvious that she was very much dead. So he began calling 911. Police arrived and stated that Priscilla had been anally and vaginally raped. Surrounding her body was tied up stockings with saliva on it, presumably used to gag Priscilla. Semen was found on the bedsheets along with various stockings and ties, all tied up in knots. It didn't take long for the police to find Abigail and William, who had both been drowned in the bathtubs. Abigail was covered in cuts and defence wounds, as well as strangulation marks around her neck. The bathtubs had been drained and the children had been spread out in different bathrooms in the house. In the kitchen bin, they found torn-up porn magazines as well as an open beer. And of course, you know where this is going. A few doors down lived Daniel LaPlante. Police decided to interview Daniel the next day. I think it's safe to say that Daniel was already on their radar as a bad person anyway. Like, this is a really small town, you have to remember that, so I don't think that it's unfair that they just went to go visit him for an unofficial interview to ask him where he was. Daniel came up with an excuse that he was at his niece's birthday party in the afternoon. However, he did not have an alibi for the morning. The police didn't have enough to arrest him on, so they leave him be. The following day, just two days after the murder of the Gustafsson children and wife, the police turned up at Daniel's house to ask some more questions. But Daniel was having none of it, and he ran. Daniel hid in the woods for 48 hours. The police set up a big search party with armed police as he was believed to be armed and dangerous and he was found in a bin on the 3rd of December. The police found the gun used to kill Priscilla in a car on his property. The bloody and wet clothes he had worn on the day were also found in his room. So Daniel was arrested and charged with three counts of murder. Daniel was tried as an adult and pleaded not guilty and he blamed his action on his mental state. The trial lasted three weeks and the jury were having none of it. And to them, it was obvious that Daniel knew what he was doing was wrong. He was found guilty on three counts of murder and was never charged for the rape against Priscilla. Which again, there's a lot of debate about this. There was no forensic testing in the 80s for semen and things like that in America, so they couldn't prove it. So it's fucking shit, but what can you do? Daniel was sentenced to life in prison on three counts, so essentially life with no option for parole. 
Daniel pleaded for a reduction in his sentence, which was declined. And here he was placed in solitary confinement. Here he was denied basic human rights that the other inmates received, such as access to the library, among other things, which again, there was a lot of debate about, so I couldn't find exactly what was true in this case. However, essentially, he runs with this and claims he's being denied basic human rights and he's being wronged by the prison. Daniel continued to fight for an appeal on this and in 2003, he won his case and was awarded with $450. In 2017, at 46 years of age, Daniel applied for resentencing once again. His lawyers pled the case that he'd served a life sentence and had been rehabilitated and that every prisoner should have the right to be reintroduced to society once they've been rehabilitated and feel remorse. Which, yes, that is how prison should and does occasionally work, but this case in particular is a tough one. It was very aggressive and sinister, but on the other hand, he was only 17 when he committed the crime, so... I don't know, guys, what do you think? His hearing took place, but it was overruled and the judge resentenced him to not be eligible for parole. So yeah, as far as we know, he is still alive and serving his sentence to this day. And there we have it, guys. That was the very complex story of Daniel LaPlante. It is amazing to me, when researching this, just how much myth and fiction was everywhere and just stated as fact. Like, it was really, really hard to find the truth on this. And we have all heard the story before of the boy in the walls, so I do think it has been fictionalised. So, as great as a horror movie that would make, <laughs> it's not entirely true. But the point still stands that the majority of that particular point in the story was true. He was in the cupboard, wearing the wedding dress, covered in makeup, holding a hatchet. Which, yeah, that alone is the creepiest shit I've ever heard. So, <laughs> there you go, guys. Now you know the fact in the story and you can continue to tell it on. Let me know what you think, guys. What's your opinion? Should he have been let out during his appeal in 2017? Personally, while I stand by the point that prison is for rehabilitation, I do think that cases like this are so, so tragically horrible. He deserves to be in prison till he dies, and I don't think he would be safe to the public. And I don't think many will disagree with that, so... For this week's five random laws, I decided to go to Massachusetts because why not? It only seems appropriate. So number one, no gorillas are allowed in the back seat of a vehicle. <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't surprise me in terms of random laws in America, but I want to know why specifically gorillas. Like, are orangutans okay? <laughs> number two, it is illegal to scare a pigeon. Why? Why? Are they sacred? I don't think anyone should scare an animal on purpose unless it's a wasp or a moth. They can categorically fuck off. But why pigeons so specifically? Number three. Stopping for red lights is not required by law unless they are flashing. Now I couldn't find if that meant that they flash instead of sit stationary in MA or whether that's just like a fluke in their electrics that happens every now and then. Number four, dogs are forbidden from riding in ambulances. But, but what, what, what if they're hurt? <laughs> Number five, 
and finally, defacing a milk carton could land you with a $10 fine. <laughs> Why? I don't there are more important things to be dealing with, like mm, gun crime. <laughs> but no, milk. <laughs> Don't deface the milk. And that is where we're going to leave it off for today, guys. Let me know what you thought of this case, if you've heard of it before and every other thought that you have on it. Thank you so much for the love, guys. As always, you are fabulous. And you can support me if you are in a position to do so by clicking the support this podcast button in the description or you can support me for free by following me on Crime Note the Pod on Instagram and sharing with your friends who also like to listen to true crime stories in their spare time. <laughs> I hope you have a fab week, guys, and enjoy the pub gardens, enjoy the shops, enjoy the hairdressers and tattoo parlours. I hope you all have a fantastic week and stay safe. I will catch you next time. Bye. Don't be afraid. Come with me.